This is the Hidden Wire Podcast, episode 650, with David Quayman, The Tangle Tree, a radical new history of life. I hope you enjoy this inspiring conversation. G'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Hidden Wire Podcast. This is episode 650, guys. I hope you're well. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying all the episodes that I'm bringing out, four or five episodes a week, a blog as well. Guys, check it all out. Let me know what you think at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, in today's discussion, I talk with David Quayman about his new book, The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life. David lives a fascinating life. He travels the world as a journalist, exploring amazing places. His interests lay in the fields of science, history, and evolution. I love this conversation, guys. I learned a little bit about molecular science, and uh, certainly it was over my head at times. What we're really talking about in this episode is horizontal gene transfer. That is the crux of the discussion. And the horizontal gene transfer, HGT, is the movement of genes across species lines. It challenges Darwinism, and it suggests that perhaps, or it actually suggests that it indeed can have genes move along sideways through a viral infection. And what was quite fascinating is that 8% of the human genome as described by David is actually through viral infection. So yeah, interesting stuff guys. Uh, It got me thinking. I'm sure it'll get you thinking as well. Let me know what you think. Make sure you connect with David too. Check out all his work. He's got uh, several books up there as well. And uh, you can do that at thehiddenwire.com. Episode 650. Enjoy the conversation. Bye. G'day David. Welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast. How are you? Very good, Lee. Good to be with you. Thanks for uh, joining us here today, all the way from Montana. Have I got that correct? Yes, you do. Yes. How is the weather over there today? Um, we've got cold breezes in the air. Autumn is uh, is liable to happen any minute. Okay, excellent. Yeah, we've got spring coming in uh, here. Actually, we just had a bit of a, a cold snap, but it's not that cold here, really. So I'm um, enjoying the, the last moments of winter. Well, it's, I'm sure it's lovely there. I've, I, uh, I have fond uh, memories of Queensland. Excellent. Lovely. So you, uh, you travel quite a bit. Um, you're a writer, a journalist, an author. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work and, and what got you into it and why you do it. What's your passion for it? Well, I, uh, to go way back very briefly, I started as a, as a fiction writer. Um, okay. Uh, no, almost 50 years ago, I published my first novel, 1970, and then I drifted into nonfiction because I, uh, a couple of things, I realized that I could more easily make a living at it, but more importantly, I discovered that um, there's a huge, fascinating world out there, and writing nonfiction allowed me to be continually learning about it, learning about other people's jobs, learning about their scientific work as I, as I focused more and more on the life sciences. Uh, and eventually, um, it has allowed me to travel around the world on book research and for National Geographic and other magazines and uh, see a lot of amazing things. Yeah, well, so what, what got you into writing 50 years ago? Well, I was always interested in yeah. writing since, since I was a kid, probably yeah. from the age of 11. I was interested in two things putting words together, writing stories and poems and plays and things, and in the natural world. And then when I was in high school, I had two brilliant, life-changing teachers, uh, a Jesuit seminarian and a Jesuit priest, and they were both English teachers. And if they had both been biology teachers, I probably would be a biologist now. Okay. Yep. Excellent. 
So, yeah, fascinating, fascinating work anyway. You've got a new book out that's, I believe, just been launched, August uh, 2018, and it's titled The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life. Uh, what got you writing this book? What's it all about? Well, I came across the central subject um, in 2013, probably mm. spring of mm. 2013. I had just finished five years of work on another book, a book about emerging diseases, viruses that fall out of animals and get into humans and sometimes call, cause death, even pandemics. That's uh, the most recent uh, times that I've spent in Queensland had been were in, in Brisbane researching Hendra virus there. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I finished that book, and then in spring of 2013, I happened to read about something called horizontal gene transfer, HGT, horizontal gene transfer, genes moving sideways across species boundaries, even moving from one family of life to another, one kingdom of life to another. And I, my reaction was, Wait, what, what? How That's does that happen? Yeah. yeah, how does that happen? Um, so I, was, I had not heard of this at all until 2013. Uh, it was completely off my radar screen, and I started reading into it and found that, yes, indeed, in the age of genome sequencing, more and more scientists were discovering that genes did bounce sideways sometimes from one species, one kingdom, into another. And it has been consequential um, in evolutionary history, and it has led to a redrawing of what we what we thought of since the age of Darwin as the the classic tree of life. And so the tangled tree of my title hmm. is this redrawn tree of life in light of these amazing counterintuitive discoveries about horizontal gene transfer and, and some other undiscovered phenomena. So can you explain to us what the um, traditional or the Darwinistic, the Darwinistic, I don't even know if that's a word, but the, um, the Darwinism theory about the tree of life, just to yeah. like, describe that for us and, and what sure. traditionally we've well, the, thought of the, as, as evolution. Right. The tree of life is an old phrase. It's an old, um, it's an old image. It goes back to the book of Revelations. It goes back to Aristotle, that kind of thinking, um, the tree of life representing one thing or another. In, in the Bible, it generally represents Christ with the, the leaves and fruit of his blessings upon, uh, upon humankind. But with Darwin, Rather suddenly, this image became an evolutionary image. Darwin himself said in uh, his book, The Origin of Species, in 1859, that um, he said something about the, the, um, the diversity of life, the affinities, the relationships of all creatures have, quote, sometimes been represented by a great tree. I believe this simile largely speaks the truth. That declaration by Darwin turned the tree of life into an image of evolutionary history on earth. And what, what made it appropriate was the fact that a tree, the limbs and the branches are constantly diverging as they grow upward, upward representing the passage of time and the branching, the diverging of limbs and branches representing the diversification of different lineages as evolution occurred. Right. And then in that image, the, the, um, the leaves on the canopy of the tree represent all of the living biological diversity on planet Earth. So that's the classical view, the Darwinian tree of life, always branching, always diverging, growing upwards, and, and, and those branches never come together. They don't converge. How, how is it branching? Can I, can I ask? 
How is what? How is it branching? Like, how is it splitting? Well, when um, when a lineage of organisms um, diverged into, uh, say, a single species split into two species, and those species had descendants, um, they each um, represented the beginning of a new lineage, then that was represented by um, the branching of two, say, uh, limbs on a tree. Yeah, okay. So that, that, that splitting was was carried out due to a species going in two different environments or something like right. that, separating right. and evolving right. from there. Exactly, yes. Through yes. the passing on of genes of that lineage. Right, right. And then, um, and then a branch might bend and turn and diverge some more, and that represented the continuing evolutionary change in that lineage and its further diversification into more species. So that's the classic Darwinian yeah. view of the tree of life. And then along came first uh, a man named Carl Woese at the University of Illinois in Urbana, Illinois, in the 1970s, who started this, this change in thinking about um, about the tree of life, and he's mm-hmm. my central character in this book. He's not, he's not the only character. It's not a biography of him, but his work um, was very important, and it also catalyzed a revolution in thinking and research by other scientists that led to a very different picture of the tree of life. So he studied the the movement of genes across species. Well, first, what he did was devise a. Of an ingenious but at the time pretty primitive mode of of gene sequencing, um, uh, detecting the different uh, patterns of components in um, in DNA and RNA that would allow him, as he said, to um, to unravel the early history of life and the formation of the most primitive cells and more complex cells, going back to the early, early history of life on Earth, 3 billion years ago, even 3.5 billion years ago. And he did that by picking one molecule, one kind of molecule, um, that exists in all living creatures and sequencing that molecule and then comparing the sequences from one kind of creature to another. And originally he was working, he was a microbiologist, so he was working on microbes. He was working on little one-celled organisms that... uh, and he, he took them all to be bacteria at that point. And then he discovered with this method that, whoa, there is a group of creatures here in, in, um, in what we're growing in the laboratory. And they've always been considered bacteria. Through a microscope, they look like bacteria. But when you look at their genomes, their DNA and RNA, you find that not only are they, are they not bacteria, but they are more different from bacteria than they are from us, complex creatures, animals, plants, fungi, that other kingdom of life that is called the, uh, the eukarya, um, uh, composed of, of, of cells, complex cells with cell nuclei and, and, and other internal structures. So there was the bacteria, one kingdom of life, and there was the eukarya, including us, all other animals, plants, fungi. And Woes discovered that there was, in fact, a third kingdom, and that group became known as the archaea. So he was first known for discovering the archaea, made the front page of the New York Times in 1977 with this discovery. Which was what we thought was a form of bacteria originally, but 
proven. But yes, but but proved to be drastically different and actually more similar to us in genetic terms than to bacteria. And that's very counterintuitive because yeah. they still look like bacteria through a microscope. So there was a lot of resistance to that discovery. But over time, it has stood up, and Woes has been proven right, and has also proven very influential in terms of work that followed from that discovery. So what, just um, to clarify, obviously the DNA we understand, RNA I'm not quite um, clear on. What is the RNA? Well, um, RNA is, uh, the fancy name is that it's a nucleic acid that puts it in the same category with DNA, particular kind of molecule. Uh, everybody knows probably that DNA is a double helix molecule. There are these two strands that wind around each other, and that gives stability to the molecule. And uh, the molecule is composed of these chemical components that we abbreviate as letters, A, C, T, and G. And so when you sequence a genome, what you do is you figure out the order of the repetitions of these A, C, T, G, G, C, A, T, T. That's what sequencing is. Yeah. But RNA is a single-stranded molecule, also composed of four letters, um, A, C, G, and U, never mind what those stand for, but a little bit different from DNA. Uh, So the sequence is, you know, how how are the A, C, uh, G, and U arranged? Yeah. And uh, the other important thing about RNA is that it's less stable because it's not a double-stranded molecule. So when it copies itself, it tends to to make mistakes. It tends to change more. It tends to mutate more. Hmm. Um, Now, the the final thing I'll tell you about RNA is that um, people have maybe heard of it being involved in the way that DNA is translated into the structures of our bodies, of our cells. But it also, besides being... Uh, having that role, it also sometimes is a structural component itself. And it's a structural component in one of the very important uh, internal mechanisms of all living cells. And that structural RNA is the Rosetta Stone molecule that Carl Woese decided that he would sequence because it exists, as I said, in all living creatures. Hmm. There you go. Learn something every day. So, <laughs> what was the um between the i can't remember the name exactly but bacteria and the the new discovery oh yeah um, archaea archaea yes archaea. archaea what what's the primary difference there like i mean obviously you say it looks like bacteria but it's it's not well um the the genome is drastically different which is what carl woes noticed but then he uh he quickly came in contact with some german uh, microbiologists and uh while the while People in America and elsewhere were saying, a lot of them saying, Carl Woese, you're crazy. The Germans picked up on this and said, no, he's not crazy because we've been looking at the biochemistry of these particular critters. And we don't think they're normal bacteria either, maybe not bacteria at all. Why? Because, um, you know, some technical reasons that were very important to them. They have different kinds of cell membranes. There's a particular kind of molecule in the cell walls of all bacteria you know, a fancy name, peptidoglycan, mm-hmm. and it doesn't exist in these creatures. So the Germans were wondering, well, where's where's this molecule? Where's the peptidoglycan? And then there, there are particular um, form of cell bonds in the in the lipids, the fats in these archaeas, and those were completely different from the ones in bacteria. Also, so on the on the bio in very technical ways, but important ways on the biochemical level as well as the genetic level, these things just don't fit within the kingdom bacteria. Right, okay. 
The other thing about them is they tend, at least the ones first discovered, they tend to live in extreme environments, uh, high temperatures, hot springs in Yellowstone Park, oh, okay. uh, thermal vents at the bottom of the ocean, highly acidic environments, highly salty environments, environments with no oxygen so that when they metabolize, they use carbon dioxide and they create methane instead of expelling, instead of using oxygen and expelling mm. carbon dioxide. So um, strange creatures, strange creatures that to you and me would look like a, a bacterium under a microscope. Well, interesting. So how, how has that discovery um, then altered our understanding well, of the evolution right to this create is the this next, tangled tree yeah the next step in the saga well it was um woe started a started a sort of a vogue a scientific vogue for using this particular molecule this rosetta stone molecule this particular kind of structural rna um as uh, as a gauge of the relatedness of living creatures so pretty soon other scientists were using this they were seek they were extracting that molecule from various kinds of creatures uh including um uh, not just bacteria and archaea but uh, complex organisms um belonging to our kingdom of life and um and they started comparing one creature with another based on on this uh this molecule and discovering new patterns of relatedness, deep relatedness that were unexpected based on what you see about creatures. And then as genome sequencing developed in the 1980s and 1990s, and suddenly it was cheap, relatively cheap and easy to sequence entire genomes and not just one molecule, people continued this using these um, molecular sequences to draw the tree of life, to see what was related to what other thing. You know, is this bird uh, within the same family as that bird? How long ago did uh, humans and chimps diverge from each other? Asking questions like that. And they started finding these very perplexing anomalies in the form of genes in lineage where they shouldn't have been. They started finding bacterial genes that um, seem to have hopped sideways into insect genomes, bacterial genes that had hopped sideways into other kinds of animals. And this is what I mentioned earlier on, this discovery of horizontal gene transfer. Um, so that was what followed from Carl Woese's work. So when we're looking at a species, I mean, apart from the obvious, you know, identifiable um, traits, I, I suppose, we, we, can, we can tell species apart by their behaviors and looks and, and physical things, Etc. I guess, but um, again, I don't know enough. But the obviously the those elements, the DNA structure, etc., uh, are different across the species. Yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, so, so how does the? I mean, this discovery of the archaea. Um, I mean, obviously, you're finding the archaea bacteria or the archaea substance. What is it? Um, the archaea kingdom. Kingdom. In across various species rather than just um, contained to one lineage? No, no. Let me um, um, ex ex explain this, I guess, a little bit more clearly. Hmm. The archaea now are recognized as a separate kingdom of life. So if you think of the classic tree of life, there were two major limbs branching from the trunk. Right. One was bacteria right. and one was all, all complex creatures, the eukarya. Woes comes along, he finds this third major limb and that becomes mm -hmm. the archaea and that 
extends upward and it branches. And so essentially, uh, and, and there are living forms of, of archaea um, on Earth today, plenty of them. And so those are the three, now the three major limbs. But then other scientists using, using methods similar to Woes's and inspired by Woes started sequencing lots of creatures and they found that, well, it's not just a matter of branches diverging. We also now have branches converging. We have, we have a branch coming from limb A and it goes sideways across and, and flows into limb C. And that's not possible with living trees, but it, it's, um, it's, it's the redrawn tree of life. It's the tangled tree of my title. Uh, and this is what scientists in the 1990s and since then have been discovering, that there is convergence as well as divergence of limbs and branches because of a couple of phenomena, the most um, dramatic of which is this horizontal gene transfer. So how does that gene transfer take place? Like how does the, it travel right. from one lineage to the next? Good question. And um, there are three technical versions of it with fancy names, uh-huh. conjugation, transduction, and transformation. But the, the overall answer in common English is it takes place by infection. A scientist, one scientist gave this the, the name infective heredity. So, for instance, if a bacterium infects an insect um, and it's a and it gets inside not just the insect's body, but inside the cells of that insect, then it's possible that that bacteria can transfer some of its DNA into the genome of the insect. And that indeed it's has possible. happened. Yeah, and then it becomes, right, and that's the infective heredity, because once it gets transferred into the genome, then it is forever passed along in the genome of that insect. So that's what we're talking about. Hmm. There you go. Let me give you one really dizzying um, example of this. This is a related phenomenon. Um, The human genome, we now know, is 8% viral. 8% of our DNA is DNA that came down to us not through the continuous lineage of animals over the last 100 million years, but by sideways infection, retroviruses bringing their DNA and getting in Retroviruses getting not just into our immune cells the way HIV does. HIV is a retrovirus. Retro meaning moves backwards and inserts its genome into cells. So um, retroviruses not just infecting our immune cells, but infecting our reproductive cells, eggs, sperm, ovaries, testes. And when those retroviruses have gotten into those reproductive lines, in the animal lineage, they have left behind their DNA to the cumulative result that 8% of the human genome is now viral DNA. And some of those are genes that are still functioning, doing things similar to what they did for viruses. Viral DNA. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Can I go on a little further with that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that happens to then all other species that we sort of know of. That's right. Yep, yep. It does happen to other species, happens to other mammals too, uh, has happened to mammals. In fact, it has made mammals possible because we now know, partly through the work of a very interesting scientist in Paris, I went to see him in Paris for, the, for an interview, uh, Thierry Heidemann is his name, and he and his group have uh, studied um, a particular stretch of this 
viral DNA in our human genomes, and they call it sensitin 2. That's the name of a gene. Originally a viral gene that made an envelope um, around the viral capsule. And now that same gene, sensitin 2, in the human genome has been um, adapted and repurposed, and it now makes a different kind of membrane, a different kind of envelope. It's a membrane between the placenta and the fetus. And in mammals, including humans, if you don't have this gene, then pregnancy is impossible because this membrane between the placenta and the fetus is absolutely crucial for mediating between the mother and the, uh, and the fetal child. Hmm. But it's, it's a viral gene that came to us by infection that has been repurposed to make pregnancy possible. Wow. That um, sort of brings so many questions to the mind, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, questions of, of human identity, uh, questions of uh, whether we are uh, composites, mosaics, rather than individuals, uh, or in what sense are we as individuals, composite creatures that are descended not just through the, um, through the animal lineage, but to some degree through the viral lineage. Yeah, well, if that, if that transfer didn't take place, then who, we wouldn't be. That's right. If a version of this transfer hadn't taken place in, in, um, in the animal lineage, oh, 100 million years ago or so, then um, mammalian evolution, mammalian physiology never would have been possible. Until then, uh, animals uh, produced offspring by way of eggs. Reptiles and birds were laying eggs. You get the fetus out of the body so that the mother's immune system doesn't react against it, put it in a nice shell, lay it on the ground, keep it warm, let it hatch. But the acquisition of this viral gene, or at least an earlier version of it, made it possible for human, for, for mammals, this new kind of creature called mammals, to keep the developing offspring inside the body, to nourish it through a placenta, um, and through this membrane that separated the placenta um, from the fetus. And this membrane carries nutrients from the mother um, to the fetus. It carries waste products from the fetus to the mother so she can void them out. And to some degree, possibly, it also protects the fetus from the mother's immune system. So this must be, this this horizontal transfer um, must be, must take place pretty quickly like how does that because i always thought it was a slow process for that to sort of happen that's right that's right and that's one of the most um oh mo- one of the most startling and consequential aspects of this in terms of being modifications of the classic uh, neo-darwinian theory of evolution what darwin and his followers said through the 19th century and the 20th century the idea was that evolution occurred very gradually by mutation, incremental mistakes as DNA copied itself, and then that those mistakes would create variation within populations, tiny, tiny, tiny variations, and then natural selection would act on those tiny variations and incrementally change species. Well, that's still true, and that's still important, but we now know that there is another form of variation that happens in big chunks all of a sudden, 
and that's by way of horizontal gene transfer, bringing in entire new genes, entire new stretches of DNA all at once by infection uh, and providing major new possibilities on which natural selection can act. Because that viral transfer of that gene that allowed mammals to reproduce, without that, we're saying that we wouldn't have been reproducing as we do. That's right. We would have had some other technique at that stage. We might have, uh, we might have been birds. We might have been reptiles. We might have been creatures that still uh, laid eggs. And so that, um, that infection happened at some stage on some level that allowed this certain, I guess it that, had to be an individual mammal or a, a group that yeah, um, yeah. allowed um, them very quickly to change how they were reproducing. One, originally it would have been the acquisition of this viral stretch of DNA by one individual animal, um, and uh, presumably a female, and that would have begun a process of allowing new possibilities to uh, her and her offspring um, incrementally, again, n- n- well, maybe incrementally is a long wrong word, suddenly opening possibilities, although there was plenty of evolution still required, that would allow retaining the offspring inside the body rather than getting it out in the form of a, of a chick or a little reptile inside of an egg. Um, Jeez, that would have freaked yeah. them out when they first uh, realized that they're no longer laying eggs in this suddenly. <laughs> well, it would have still happened somewhat gradually. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's what made us possible. And, of course, the ability to retain um, your offspring inside the body has a lot of advantages. And it's one of the reasons why mm-hmm. animals have thrived and succeeded so well on the planet. Um, if you lay your eggs on the ground, then you have to stay around and protect them and keep them warm. And they are vulnerable. If you have your offspring inside your body then you can run away from predators and and take your developing offspring with you. Okay, yeah, it's really really interesting. Can you can we detect where that that infection occurs and and where that gene transfer comes from? Well, um this is this is work in progress now. And Terry Heidemann's group and a number of other researchers have worked on this. They have found different versions of this gene in different kinds of mammal. They found one in, if I recall correctly, one in opossums. Um, they found another in uh, some other kinds of um, non-human uh, animal. And they found this one particular kind that they call sensitin 2 in humans. And what, uh, what Terry Heidemann told me when I visited him was that their hypothesis is that um, originally there was an acquisition of this kind of gene from a retrovirus, and that allowed the beginning of mammal evolution. And then there have been additional acquisitions of similar um, viral genes, and they have represented replacements and improvements. So continuing the evolutionary development of humans by the further acquisition of viral genes of the same rough sort that allowed a perfecting or at least an improvement of, of this, uh, this gene that creates this membrane. Cool stuff. What these viral the viruses, infections? I mean, are they all just coming from planet Earth, or are they introduced? Um... Well, presumably they're coming from planet Earth, and we know um, Terry Heidemann and others who study them can say um, can say that they are retroviruses. So they can place these to a particular family of viruses. Retroviruses are a particular family 
They're different from um, the uh, uh, the filoviruses that includes uh, Ebola. They're different from the uh, orthomyxoviruses, which, I re- if I recall correctly, includes hendrovirus. Uh, so they're their own family, um, the retroviruses, and and these are now called endogenous retroviruses for another fancy term, simply meaning that they have been internalized um, by us or by other creatures into our genomes. So, um, you said you learn something every day, but endogenous retroviruses. I don't know if any of your listeners will, will care to latch on to and remember that one, but, uh, but uh, tell them you... You can tell them they heard it first here on Lee Martin's show. <laughs> um, so what, I suppose, moving forward, um, this research, what sort of implications do you see as this having on, I guess, our understanding of evolution, but also um, the, diversi- the diversification of, of our species moving forward and, and life as we know? Yeah, well, it has, uh, it has very deep, profound implications for understanding the history of life and a sense of who we are, understanding that we humans, along with other creatures, are composite creatures. And that's in the realm of pure science and almost philosophy, our understanding of our place within the living world on this planet. But there are also some very practical implications for these discoveries, and one of them is the subject of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Now, we're hearing more and more about this in the U.S. I'm sure you're hearing about it in Australia, too. The problem with with dangerous bacteria that are resistant to our antibiotics, resistant to penicillin, resistance to methicillin, resistant to uh, the other antibiotics yeah, that we've developed. And uh, in the U.S., I think more than 11,000 people a year are now dying of of bacterial infections that used to be curable using antibiotics. But these 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 bacteria have become some people call them superbugs uh, because they you know they they laugh at the uh, the antibiotics that we throw at them and they continue to sicken and kill people. Now this is a problem that has spread around the world really quickly. Um, the understanding was the assumption was that this also happened by incremental old-fashioned. Darwinian evolution, you know, tiny mutations in one strain of bacteria as it's exposed to a particular antibiotic um, leads to natural selection so that the fittest of those bacteria survive and they happen to be resistant to that antibiotic and they develop just the way insects develop pesticides, they develop a resistance to this antibiotic. And that is still true. That classic Darwinian picture is still true for the additional, for the original acquisition of resistance to one antibiotic. But now we know that those resistant genes in, in one strain of bacteria can jump across into a completely different kind of bacteria by, here comes that phrase again, horizontal gene transfer. In an instant, um, a resistant strain of salmonella can pass its resistance to a previously unresistant strain of staphylococcus. Those are two completely different kinds of bacteria. But mm. this problem is spreading around the world because of that horizontal gene transfer of whole packages of genes for resistance to uh, whole groups of antibiotics. So it's a global health crisis, uh, and the explanation for the global health crisis, a large part of the explanation is horizontal gene transfer among bacteria. 
And that's just, I guess, a, a population, the size, I guess, that population growing is, is going to make that more apparent and, and um, regular? You mean with human population yeah. growing? Yeah. Um, yeah, human population growing, becoming um, more crowded, uh, moving around more readily from one continent to the other. And yes, that's what you find. You find that, you know, an antibiotic resistant gene that evolved in a hospital in Brisbane um, can suddenly be transferred into a completely different kind of um, bacterium, maybe in a woman's stomach. And she gets on a plane and goes to uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, she can carry that bug with her, and the antibiotic resistance comes with it and can pass that to other anti- to other bacteria, and and this, this problem spreads around the world that way, uh, just the way the problem of emerging viruses that I described in my previous book, um, uh, viruses like Ebola can potentially spread around the world at the speed of an airplane. Very quickly. Right. Hmm. So uh, more to come. Mm. Oh, yeah. Stay tuned, people. Uh, you'll be hearing more about this. That's uh, yeah, fascinating work. Mate, look, look, it sounds like a, a fantastic uh, book and, and a lot of research went into it. You spent, what, about five years, do you, on, on your research and your books? I did. I spent about five years on this book, five years on the last one. And a lot of it is telling stories of people. I mean, there's a lot of scientific research, facts, and ideas in this book. But, um, but I try and... Um, animate that with the stories of people, people like Carl Woese, this fellow in Illinois, and, and a number of other researchers who have these strange lives and these and these peculiar characters and these individual stories that lead to the discovery. So, so it's it's a book about human stories as much as it's a book about science. Yeah, which is what people love, isn't it? So, I'll stick the um, the link in the show notes. Obviously, they can pick it up from Amazon, etc. Um, but for mm-hmm. you guys listening out there, jump onto thehiddenwide.com and support the show by using the link within. Um, and I'll put some of um, your other books in there too, David, so um, the audience Thank can you. check out as well. I've got some questions, David. I'm just going to bring them up now sure. that I ask all yeah. guests. Um, and the first question I want to ask you is, do you have any routines or rituals that you believe contribute to your success? Well, <clears throat> yes. Um, I I have I have really two phases of my work. I have the research, which involves a, a whole lot of travel, listening to scientists, following them around through their labs or through jungles, taking a lot of notes, writing a journal every morning to put it into narrative form. And then I come home and I pile all these materials up on my desk. And I get up early in the morning and I drink coffee until I go into a trance and, and I write the book. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't make outlines. I tell stories of people, as we said. People want to read about people. So I, I look for the thread of human narrative that illuminates the scientific ideas, the constellations idea, of ideas and the discoveries. And, uh, and I think with every paragraph I write, where is the reader? Is the reader with me? Is the reader getting confused about all this terminology and these scientific ideas? Does the reader need a little story told? Does the reader need a joke? Does the reader need a change of pace sometimes? And I try very hard to think about one individual reader and bring her or him along with me. Yeah, um, well. Page. Yeah, and I assume it's not an easy task to, um, when you're talking about, you know, the stuff that you research, the science behind it. Um, it is quite confusing. 
Um, so to to bring that yeah. that entertaining but, narrative and the story into it is is very important, and to to be aware of that. In, in my view, and my implicit message is: look, look, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not trained as a scientist either. If I can understand this stuff, you can understand it too. So trust me, and here we go. Yeah. So your your writing ritual. So it looks like waking up early, drinking cups of coffee. Is there anything else in particular you do in that routine that's maybe read, unique or different? I read for about a half an hour, something work related, before I start to write to okay. wake my brain up. Uh, I uh, I'm sorry to say that I I I look at my email and I answer some emails. That that wasn't originally part of my routine, but uh, as t- you know, as the world changes, I have to change too. So I do a little bit of email and and then uh, my phone is unplugged and I I I focus in and I try and write um, oh maybe two pages during the first three hours of work and if I can get two pages of rough draft and and revise it um, in the course of a day I'm happy okay nice and what what is your definition of success uh, what is my definition of success um, well outward success uh, of any sort you know book sales or whatever allows me to continue writing challenging books that deeply interest me uh, books that I ho- I try to write books that nobody else is going to write. Um, so the core of success for me is writing a, a book that both entertains people and changes the way they view and understand the world. That's what I'm after. I want people to turn the pages. I want them to be entertained. I want them to laugh. I want them to cry. And at the end, I, I hope that my book will change the way they view the world. Yeah, very cool. What advice would you give your twenty-year-old self? <laughs> uh, what would I? When I was twenty, um, I had a long path in front of me. I'd published one book early, but then I had thirteen years during which I didn't publish another book. I worked as a bartender. I waited tables. I worked as a fishing guide. Um, I had. I wrote books that were rejected. My advice to my young self would be: Don't give up. Take heart. Keep at it. Keep plugging. Um, to be a, a successful writer in any sense of the word success, it takes talent, discipline, and luck. And if you have the talent and you have the discipline, eventually the luck will come. <laughs> nice. You're very good. Uh, and, yeah, inspirational too. Don't give up. I like it. What one tool, skill, resource, or technique has helped you improve your effectiveness or productivity? Hmm. Uh, um, one of them is, uh, of course, now we're, we've got the internet and we're all connected. And I sit here in my little office in Bozeman, Montana. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't have a university appointment, but I have adjunct status at the local university, Montana State University. And that gives me library privileges. So now I can sit at my desk and in the course of minutes, I can find and download scientific journal articles from all over the world. It used to be I would go to the library, I would walk through the stacks, I would pull down volumes, I would Xerox articles. And if I could get three articles in the course of a morning, I would be happy. Now I can get three articles in 10 minutes from journals all over the world. That has hugely helped me yeah. 
do research. Actually, I was going to ask you, going back to the previous question, you said, uh, you know, discipline, having good discipline. Um, have, is that something that you, you've evolved with, your discipline um, as a writer? Because I know a lot of writers just say, sit your bum in the chair and write. Um, how have yeah. you sort of evolved your discipline? Um, when I was uh, 20 years old, I said, sit your bum in the chair and write. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I got my first book written that way. I was a junior in college. Uh, I had a story that I wanted to tell as a novel. I got up every morning and went off to breakfast and drank coffee and came back, and I had no classes until 11 a.m. So from 9 to 11, I sat there with a pencil and yellow legal pads, and I tried to write three pages in that two-hour stretch. And I forced myself to write three pages, whether they were good pages or bad pages. Mm. I didn't know whether I could write a book. Writing a book seemed formidable and scary, but I thought, you know, if I write three pages a day for 100 days— that's 300 pages. That sounds like a book. I might actually have a book. And so I did that, and I did, and that book was published. Um, so with that sort of stubborn act of the will, at the very beginning, I, I tested the possibility of discipline, and I learned the rewards of discipline. Okay. And what, what has been the one thing, just on the writing for a second, one thing that has refined or improved or enhanced your writing over that time? What, what particular aspect? Um, two things, I think. I become more and more aware of the importance of the music of language. The sentence isn't right until the music of the sentence is right, as well as the meaning of the sentence. Mm-hmm. The music of the paragraph, the rhythm, the way it flows, the way it, it surges and pauses and surprises. The music of language is very important to me, even though I'm writing about complicated science. And secondly, I'd say um, I have learned a lot about how to write slowly since I was 20 years old. Now, that was 50 years ago. Now I'm 70 years old. So 50 years of learning to write slowly and revising more and more. So probably, you know, 20 percent of my writing process is first draft and 80 percent of my time and effort is revising. Right. Cool. I like it. If I was to serve you your last meal, what would you request? <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, my last meal. Um, a good, honest barbecued chicken breast and a martini. <laughs> okay. What activity gives you the greatest sense of joy? Uh, I love spending time with my wife and our animals. Um, she comes into my office in the morning after I've been working for a while and in comes stampeding um, two big Russian wolfhounds and sometimes the cat. And already in the office with me is Boots the python, the ball python that lives in a cage in my office. And we sit and I take a break from my work and we sit and we talk and we, we call it – we don't have kids, but these are our family and we call that the family meeting. And uh, it's one of my happiest moments of the day. The other things I love are exercise. I love skiing. I love road biking. Uh, I'm learning to love golf in my old age. Um, so I love physical exercise uh, and uh, and time with my wife and our critters. Lovely. What book would you pass down? What one book would you pass down to future generations? Of, of other writers or myself? Just other writers. Um, the book that probably um, 
uh, grabbed me more than any other was um, one of Faulkner's novels, Absalom, Absalom. I did my my undergraduate and my graduate work on William Faulkner, the novels of William Faulkner, and that was among among a number of amazing novels he wrote. That was the most amazing to me, Absalom, Absalom. Okay, and of your collection, because you've got, what, 13 books, is it, or more? I think 16, depending on how okay. you count. Yeah. So which of your books would you recommend? I guess it would be either this one or The Song of the Dodo, my 1996 book about evolution and extinction on islands and what we've learned about evolution and extinction throughout Earth from the study of islands. That was that was the one that allowed me to spend time on Tasmania and, uh, and a bit of time also in Queensland, uh, in Townsville. Okay. I was traveling the world to learn about islands. That's amazing. I love it. What a fascinating uh, career. If you had a quote, text, message, or something like that, um, what would that be if you could text it to the, the rest of the world? Um, I'll phrase that whole question incorrectly, but... No, I get, I get it. You get it. Uh, people, we've got to save biological diversity. Just that. Okay. People, we've got to save biological diversity. And do you believe we all have a hidden why or a purpose? Um, in a sense, uh, I sometimes jokingly say to, to, to friends that um, there's your goal in life and there's your purpose in life. And uh, your goal in life is something that you define and you find and your purpose is something that finds you. And uh, because we have we have dogs and we have cat, have had a series of cats. Now we have a snake. We we got these animals in our life. I sometimes say um, this is half serious. That my goal in life has always been to be a writer, and I found that. And my purpose in life found me, and that is to transfer money from publishers to veterinarians. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. That's supposed to be a joke, but uh, <laughs> we we spend a lot of money taking care of our critters, and so my purpose in life, at least as a member of this family, is to is to earn money from publishers and transfer it to the wonderful and loving veterinarians who take care of our family. Well, that's a good purpose, yeah. Uh, you think you could do worse? <laughs> so, what what does living life with passion and purpose mean? What does living life uh, with passion and purpose mean? That's a good question, Lee. One of the things it means is finding what you really want to do. And this is, I suppose, your hidden why. For some people, it's very difficult to find that. It's a real problem. It's a difficult question. And they've spent their lives trying to figure out, what do I really care about? What has deep purpose to me? What do I really want to do? I've been extraordinarily lucky because uh, I've known that since the essentially since the age of 11. I've known that I either wanted to be um, a natural historian, a biologist, or a writer, and, and I became a writer. Um, so that's my real hidden why, to put words together and tell stories that people can read. Uh, I've been lucky to know that from very, very early on. Hmm. And so living uh, life with, how did you phrase it, with passion and principle? Passion and purpose, yeah. Passion and purpose um, involves doing that, doing that, and damn the torpedoes. 
Uh, I was doing that when I had to do, I had to be a bartender or a waiter or a fishing guide in order to uh, keep trying. Uh, I'm doing it now that the world pays me pretty well to continue doing it. Um, I know that I love my work because I love Monday mornings. And I write yeah. essentially <laughs> Monday morning is when the workday uh, perks up for magazine editors and book editors and and all sorts of people that I'm connected with in my in my work. And so I may be writing on Saturday or on Sunday, um, but Monday is a little bit different. Monday is when the work week starts for everybody. And I love Monday mornings because what kind of things, possibilities will it bring? I don't know, but I'm going to find out. Yeah, I like it. And do you? Oh, what do you believe is your underlying motivation behind everything you do? Well, oh boy, these are good questions, uh, probing deep questions. Uh, my underlying motivation, I think, is I want to create art. I'm a science writer. Some people call me a science journalist, but really, I. My, my aspiration is to create literary art that people will enjoy reading, but as I said, be changed by reading, be inspired by reading. Mm. Um, um, that is, um, what, again, what was, how was this question phrased? What is my the motivation, your motivation, like the primary yeah. motivation? So my primary motivation is to create literary art and to be a good guy, to be a good person, to be a good husband, mm. to be a good friend. Create literary art and and be a good person. Nicely done. So what's um what's on the agenda next for you? You got another book in in the works? Well, I will have soon. I haven't uh, uh, haven't talked with my publisher about that, but I have an idea uh, for the next one. But in the meantime, I've got a lot of work to do for National Geographic magazine. I'm doing yeah. a, a multi part series for them on the last wild places of planet earth. So I'm, I'm traveling, researching and writing on that as I'm doing, um, some, some book tour chores for the tangled tree. Oh, how wonderful. And, um, how can people best reach you, David? It's just a website. Uh, website, davidquaman.com, www.davidquaman.com. Excellent. I'll stick that in the show notes, guys. Check it out at thehiddenwhy.com. David, thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been an inspiring conversation. Very fascinating. I learned a, a thing or two. Lee, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for your interest and your time. Thank you, David. And guys, check it all out again at thehiddenwire.com. This is episode 650. Um, So you can type that in. You'll find all the show notes there. And until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels, using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. 
You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose. And in doing so, you will discover your hidden why. This is The Hidden Why. My name is Lee Manutzi. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.